Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Please be advised this podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature. It's not appropriate for children. Um, why would you do that? Why was I not able to see that? Why was I not able to um, to appreciate the wrongfulness of of that conduct? Why did I believe it was, uh, um, you know, just uh, um, asking a girl out or just hitting on on some girl or something that I had um, I had done, you know, dozens of times? I would though um, very much uh, like. Um, not only your listeners, but everybody to understand the um, uh, the full number of consequences that I that I had um, born because of of that behavior. stories about the guts and the glory of life and I know this is a controversial way to get back up and running again but I really believe this man's story qualifies. Ken Kratz is Netflix's greatest villain. He's the prosecutor who successfully convicted Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey of the rape and murder of Teresa Hallback in 2005. The case then became the subject of the documentary series Making a Murderer, which convinced millions of people across the world that a great miscarriage of justice had taken place, that innocent men were in jail, and that Kratz was at the very least, complicit in a corrupt police investigation, and at most, a complete asshole. The series spawned an internet cult obsessed with continued investigation that soon uncovered the kind of dirt on Ken Kratz it was baying for in the form of a sexual harassment case dating back to 2009. No doubt you're aware of it because that case is referred to constantly by Ken's many detractors. But do you actually know the details? Well, 
You're about to hear them, along with many other unflattering things about Ken Kratz. But here's the surprising part. He's going to tell you all about it himself. And then, once he's confessed to all of his sins, he's going to lay out once again a pretty compelling argument as to the guilt of Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey. And then he's going to point out again some glaring omissions made by the filmmakers of Making a Murderer. And he's going to ask some new questions about their possible motives for keeping the dream of the series alive. I Skyped with Ken from a hotel in Sydney where I was on tour promoting my latest book. It's called Michelle Laurie, Bad Buddhist, which he found quite amusing. So what can you tell me about uh, about Buddhism that I don't, uh, that I, I'm just teasing. <laughs> I'm, uh, I find it, I find it very fascinating that, uh, that that's your, your area of expertise, so. Well, it's my area of interest. I wouldn't say expertise, but it's my area of interest. It keeps me, uh, you know, grounded and tries to, I try to use it to keep me peaceful. It, uh, just keeping you centered, right? And, uh. And making sure that uh, all of the noise that goes around here gets uh, gets either blocked out or at least a correct spectrum. So that that's uh, that's wonderful. I I try very hard to um, to stay centered, and um, I must say that the past couple of weeks I haven't I haven't been successful. But that's okay. We'll uh, we'll keep trying, and uh, and see what happens. Were you were you sort of getting back to any kind of normality before this second series started? I think so. There is um, always a handful of um, of haters out there, and and I'm certainly, you know, the poster child for um, uh, for for the other side. It, it seems that. Uh, many of uh, my behaviors in uh, in the past, that is after the um, um, Avery case was uh, was tried, make it rather easy for uh, people to uh, to criticize or to to judge, and um, and I'm very disappointed in that. I, I my um, uh, bad decision making after um, the Avery case. Uh, put me really in a, a a very dark place, a very um, selfish and and um, and narcissistic place. And I was um, using prescription drugs at the time, Vicodin and, and Xanax. I don't know if you're familiar with those, if they have those in Australia, but I'm sure something akin to that is uh, is down there. So the um, um, the decision making and the um, you know the the lifestyle I had chosen was um, was very fast and was um, kind of out of control. It caught up with me, the, and when that happens, um, as you may have known from others who have experienced something like that, uh, your world kind of crashes. And when things um, they go all at once, Michelle. They don't. It doesn't happen one at a time. And so when, when you end up after, um, 
after the fact and you look around at the carnage that you've created kind of in the wake of all of these uh, horrible decisions you ask yourself what the hell was i thinking what what did i do how did i get to where i am now and i really didn't have um very good uh, explanations for that and it took me really four or five years before i was able to um divorce myself from that whole lifestyle and the real tragedy for me anyway for me personally is since i had spent um almost 30 years representing crime victims and and trying to uh, ensure that um that women and and children and and uh and really all crime victims were treated with dignity and 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 respect and making sure that i advocated for them which i had done i was able to do uh, my entire career um after the fact all of that is forgotten and all of that is is um you know a a a, a sad asterisk on on uh, on what you're then known known for and it's uh, and it's not very attractive at all and so i've had to kind of bear that responsibility and of course uh, coming full circle now to my original point it made me a uh, a rather easy target for um for people that uh, wanted to um dismiss my arguments in the Avery case or dismiss my criticisms of making a murderer instead of looking at what it was i was saying they looked at who was saying it and uh that's a um uh not unique to me of course and uh, and that's not much of a uh, not much of a life anymore you know it's not much of 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 using my skills and using um my experience and and uh I'm kind of left with um just kind of playing out the string here and so hopefully someday I will be able to regain at least enough of my reputation that I'll be able to practice in some form again uh, uh or or if not uh, not as a career at least helping others uh, in uh their legal troubles or or um you know even with uh with other personal problems that they've had I'm kind of in a a good position a unique position to assist others who struggle with addiction or who struggle with you know bad um, bad decision making so uh severe um that uh, when other people um go through something like that I, it's easy for me to recognize that it's easy for me to recognize what's what's happening and and hopefully I can provide a a glimmer of hope that uh uh you know it's not a life sentence it's something that uh, eventually you will um you will overcome you'll get uh, you'll get through to the other side and when you do then uh, life gets much better uh gets much um um you know much more fulfilling than when you were just uh, in active addiction or or waiting um you know waiting for your next uh um a time that you're uh, uh, acting out in a in a unhealthy way and so um so that's my uh that's my hope is that I'll be able to uh, continue to um not only live my life uh, now the way that um that I uh, always had or always had 
had planned to, uh, but that it can help others that uh, that may have um, gotten off of their game and and uh, and get back to uh, being uh, being happy and healthy and productive. Ah, uh, well, you know what? I just realized what books I have to send you. It's the it's my favorite Buddhist teaching. It's the teaching of impermanence that everything and everyone is always changing. And uh, yeah. so, yeah, that's that's the one for you because it it will help you. It helps me. It helps us forgive ourselves and it helps us to explain to ourselves and to everyone else that, you know, um, we're different. We're, I'm a different person to the person I was when I did that, which is not to excuse that behaviour or... But, you know, I'm not that person and I can... And then that's okay for me to accept that and to uh, I don't have to keep beating myself up for that person that I was and that behavior. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I'll, I'll tell you, Michelle, that that is, that is, at least for me, um, my last hurdle. That's something I haven't been able to do. I haven't been able to forgive myself. I haven't been able to do anything but... Um, but look back on, on on the problems I created. You know, there's a there's an analogy I often use, and and uh, and my life was a um, a red sports car that was going, you know, 100 uh, miles an hour, and uh, and and uh, living life with uh, with your hair on fire, and just uh, uh, just going uh, full full bore, and then. And then one day, uh, when you crash and you um, uh, you have this uh, this wreck, this uh, mangled uh, metal, and uh, and it's towed off to the uh, to a junkyard, um, which is uh, I guess ironic with uh, with the Avery case, but it's towed off to a junkyard, and and I've spent uh, a good part of uh, the last eight years visiting that junked car going in and 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 if you can envision putting your hands on a chain link fence and and just staring at the wreckage and saying how did i do that how how is it that i've gotten to where i am today so that image of me looking through the fence at at the sports car that i had um had been blessed to be able to uh, to at least uh, figuratively, um, uh, someday I have to leave that fence. I have to leave that uh, that wreckage, and uh, and move on and say, you know, um, that's not me anymore. That's not my life anymore. I can't keep looking backwards at at what it is that I did. I've got to, uh, uh, at the very least, uh, be able to uh, to move forward with uh, uh, with some semblance of, 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 as you mentioned, being settled or, or, uh, or forgive business for myself. And I look forward to the day that I'll be able to do that. So could we talk about the, the behavior specifically that you're talking about, please? Sure. There was one uh, crime victim in 2009 that uh, she was 25 years old. She had come to my uh, office. Uh, I had uh, that very day that I met this young woman uh, separated from my wife and we had uh, started divorce proceedings. Uh, at the same time, I was uh, using prescription drugs, which really um, isn't an excuse at all, but what it does is it removes all of the inhibitions that I had. It's kind of like taking the safety off of a gun and, uh, and, and just going around and uh, willingly uh, making incredibly 
bad decisions. And so uh, she and I had uh, engaged in a um, a texting relationship. None of the conversations were face to face. There was no physical contact uh, with the woman. Um, and in fact, I had uh, asked her at the conclusion of our texting whether she wanted to meet me for a beer after her case was over. I told her that we couldn't have any kind of relationship until her case had been concluded, but that perhaps she would like to meet me out uh, for a beer sometime. There was no request for sex. There was no dirty language that was used. There um, were no exchange of, of pictures or anything, anything like you, uh, like you may hear. Yet it was uh, characterized as sexting, and that's an easy word, I guess, to use, but when there was no request for uh, sex, which was ever, uh, ever made, um, and, uh, and no dirty language, and basically asking her out uh, for a beer, um, I always believed that that characterization was unfair. It wasn't something that I had engaged in at all. Uh, I was, um, uh, however... Uh, not in a position to um, have a relationship with this woman. It was uh, it was wrong. We had a different um, uh, standard, um, at least uh, surrounding her case, in that um, uh, it was uh, uh, wrong. And um, I'm trying to uh, to think of uh, of of the best word here: uh, an abuse of my power to. Um, make those uh, requests of her. She was in a vulnerable had, position. Said, yeah, she was vulnerable. Absolutely. You were in a position of yeah. power. And these are things that we understand so much more clearly and we have more clear language around now. Right. And I, and I sent her 30 uh, text messages. She responded. She sent me 23 messages. I had asked her several times if she wanted to stop texting with me ever. And she had always reiterated, no, it's just fine. Um, it was not unwanted behavior on her part, but it was clearly, um, clearly wrong. I had uh, thereafter, um, after speaking to, um, uh, she had uh, 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 reported um, the, uh, the contact um, to a local uh, police agency, and they transferred it. And, uh, kind of a complex story, but um, they had concluded that there was nothing illegal that was done. But they had uh, suggested, and I agreed with their suggestion, to self-report to, um, in Wisconsin, what's called the um, Office of Lawyer Regulation. That's the, the licensing board for, uh, for my law license. And so I did. I self-reported within um, within a couple of months, really, of the of the behavior. I told them all about the behavior. I sent them all of the text messages, um, and I said, "Take a look at this and see if this is something that you believe I need to be uh, reprimanded for, punished for, sanctioned for." And uh, and they did. They did their investigation, and they concluded in the March of 2010 that I had not violated any ethical rules in Wisconsin. It was one of those things that you know better and you shouldn't be engaging in anything. Um, but I had removed myself from the case. Um, I hadn't had any uh, 
physical contact with her. I hadn't had any face-to-face -face conversations with her. And so they concluded that it was not a violation and they dismissed uh, the, uh, uh, the case against me. Fast forward six months from then and their decision to, um, to not sanction me was leaked then by the Associated Press to, excuse me, leaked to the Associated Press. And the Associated Press uh, then did a, uh, a story about it. You know, when you have your case considered by the Office of Lawyer Regulation and they dismiss it, that case remains confidential for, for good reason. Lawyers shouldn't be uh, subjected to, you know, continued um, uh, having to answer questions when their case has been investigated and dismissed. Uh, however, uh, after the leak to the uh, to the news agency, the case uh, took a life of its own um, because I was very well known, certainly well known for the uh, the Avery case. But beyond that, I was a, a, a relatively high profile prosecutor in the state of Wisconsin, and so the uh, uh, the media circus um, became just that. It was uh, it was very very um, difficult to have um, been a uh, a respected uh, prosecutor uh, one day, and uh, about forty eight hours thereafter, I'd lost everything. I, it was clear I was going to lose my career, and they said it all came crashing down on me. Uh, that's what happened after the fifteenth of September of uh, of two thousand ten. Um, a couple of days thereafter, um, the uh, media attention, the um, um, the hatred, the um, uh, attacks on me, although uh, uh, probably uh, uh, well justified, uh, got too much for me. And on the nineteenth of September, I put a gun in my mouth. And uh, so I had um, I had spiraled to that point, which was um, I suppose rock bottom. It's the lowest that um, that I could be. All of the things, like I said, were crashing around me, and and everything that I had worked for um, was was gone immediately. The the descent uh, was so fast and so dramatic that I couldn't handle it anymore. I had um, called a, a psychologist friend of mine, told him what I had done that morning, um, told him what I was contemplating, and um, the very next morning I was on a plane to inpatient treatment. Spent the next six weeks um, cut off from uh, the world, cut off from um, uh, my career and all the media, um, and what I didn't know Michelle was during most of that time, the um, media attention uh, didn't stop. It just it kept growing. Uh, I had uh, uh, I was forced to resign uh, my position, uh, and thereafter, um, nobody would hire me. Nobody would um, uh, you know allow me to uh, uh, to continue on, and I I was forced then to. Uh, uh, begin a, uh, a private law practice. Um, well, go a, a couple of years further, the 
uh, Office of Lawyer Regulation, the agency that had dismissed the case against me, had gotten an incredible amount of criticism for their not um, sanctioning me, not punishing me. And they decided for the first time in uh, Wisconsin history to reopen a dismissed case, to take a case that had been investigated and dismissed and uh, and reopen and reconsidered it. They were um, uh, chastised for, for not sanctioning me. In fact, the um, the lawmaker, the, the legislature who handles their budget threatened them. They said, if you don't sanction Ken Kratz, we're going to audit your finances. Um, and so this agency, he was in charge of, of um, sanctioning lawyers all throughout the state, um, reopened the case and I ended up having my license suspended. And so, um, uh, this whole process, though, they had announced publicly that they were going to suspend me. And so that caused me to lose my private practice. Nobody uh, nobody would hire me. Nobody uh, uh, would do any of that. And then, of course, after, um, uh, after I was suspended uh, and uh, was able then to reopen my law firm, I remember a couple of years later, then making a murderer came up. And so making a murderer then recycled this entire um, uh, texting case. Um, they had, and by the way, um, people that watched uh, making a murderer had um, called my, uh, my law firm every minute for the next uh, 30 or 45 days so that I couldn't get any phone calls through. I couldn't continue on with my practice. And then that was another and my final um, law firm that had been uh, closed up and I haven't been able to practice since. So that is, um, um, you know, that's my story. Not only to never uh, try to hide this, you know, I, as I mentioned, I self-reported. It is very, very difficult for me to um, to tell this story because the natural uh, reaction for people hearing this is that I am um, pretending to be a victim. That I am, I'm saying that uh, uh, you know it wasn't that bad or any of those things. It, never have I done that. I took full responsibility from day one. Um, threw myself on the sword. I didn't want a hearing. Uh, I was uh, willing to take whatever uh, punishment uh, it was that they were going to uh, that they were going to hand out. But I never, Michelle, believed um, that uh, texting uh, a young lady and asking to have a beer would be what I call a life sentence. I never thought that that would prohibit me from uh, practicing in the future from teaching ever in the future, from, uh, you know, really any kind of, uh, any kind of uh, work that I had uh, done to that point. And so um, it is um, understandably not something that every, anybody, uh, uh, you know, says poor Ken or, or, uh, or any of that. Uh, I'm not looking for any, uh, any sympathy. I would though um, very much uh, like, um, 
not only your listeners, but everybody to understand the um, uh, the full number of consequences that I that I had um, born because of of that behavior, not only being suspended, uh, but losing my, uh, uh, you know, losing my license. And I was uh, sued by this young girl in federal court. Um, and, um, you know, I had lost all of my life savings. I had um, lost my wife, certainly, from, um, you know, from the incident. And, and worst of all of that, it was my, was my reputation. Um, and so I've, I've battled for the next uh, um, five or six years, as I said, to uh, try to get my, uh, my self-respect being able to to answer for myself uh, um, why would you do that why would somebody at least uh, presumably so smart and uh, and so willing to um, to look 10 steps ahead in in, in 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 the law and in my cases why was I not able to see that why was I not able to um, to appreciate the wrongfulness of of that conduct. Why did I believe it was, uh, um, you know, just uh, um, asking a girl out or just hitting on, on some girl or something that I had, um, I had done, you know, dozens of times uh, during that whole period of my life. I was um, a philanderer. I was um, not faithful to uh, to my wife. Um, I, uh, you know, was uh, uh, leading, I suppose, uh, what could be considered a double life. That uh, that at work I was uh, very upstanding and and uh, and and very much able to perform my duties as a district attorney. Uh, but in my private life, I was um, uh, I was very much um, engaging in sexually inappropriate uh, decision making affairs and. Um, and really out of control. Um, I can say that uh, I believe that uh, the intervention that happened, the the going to treatment um, after my uh, uh, my suicidal um, um, ideas were um, uh, was very good for me. Saved my life, I'm sure. Um, you know, engaging in in, in what I call the 100 and, uh, 150 miles an hour going down, screaming down the road uh, was not going to end well for me. You know, it was going to end in in uh, uh, in death, in uh, uh, in jail, imprisonment, or or at the very least, um, um, you know, hurting somebody in a in a in a very real, very um, a very profound way. So. Um, I suppose I'm grateful for um, for the intervention, the things that uh, that did happen. I remain, um, you know, the target. I think the target from uh, making a murderer um, uh, was uh, as much, uh, if not more, for uh, that behavior that I had engaged in, uh, rather than the uh, the prosecution. You know, the Avery prosecution. Had been applauded, had been um, uh, celebrated by homicide investigators and prosecutors throughout the world as uh, one of the 
models of how to handle a high-profile murder case and how to investigate. You know, it was the largest case in Wisconsin history. It was the most watched murder case in Wisconsin history. And now, um, you know, coming uh, uh, coming full circle uh, many years later, is probably one of the uh, very most scrutinized cases uh, in history, in, in uh, really in any country. And so uh, because of all that, my work has stood up. Uh, my work has uh, uh, has remained, uh, even despite all of that scrutiny, um, uh, is very much uh, a um, a good investigation and a good prosecution, uh, and uh, and seeking the justice that uh, that the murder of Teresa Hawak uh, uh, required, um, and so. Um, uh, none of those things have been have been criticized. Uh, no, I just have to say, I mean, that's why it, it, I think that's why you remain so controversial and why uh, you remain such a figure of interest. Firstly, because you obviously were very uh, proud of the work that you were doing at the time. And I think it was clear as we were watching it in the documentary that you were, there was an arrogance about what you were doing. You were very proud of what you were doing. You were a man at the peak of your powers. You were aware that it was a big case. You were aware that everyone was excited by what you were doing. Uh, and for a man, you know, you, it was clear that you were, um, you could say narcissist if you'd like to. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I definitely was, you know, and that especially at that time. But what what you don't know and what your listeners don't know um, is you also were shown exactly what the filmmakers wanted you to see. But also, and I'm so, not mad at you so, for that. I'm not mad no, at no, you no, for no, any no. of that. What, 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 what I'm saying is the arrogance that I may have come across um, was highly exaggerated in making a murderer. I'm a very soft-spoken person. I don't, I don't normally seek out attention or seek out the media, but I'm made to look as though I was, and that's the part that is is so difficult for uh, uh, for me. The 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 deceptiveness of that storytelling. Well, the impression is still, and a lot of our listeners still use language like fame whore attention seeker because they still think that that is something that you're interested in because they ask the question why does he keep injecting himself into this case why does he still go to hearings and I always think to myself well it must be really difficult because that initial trial was a period in your life when you were at the peak of your powers and you are constantly still all these years later being challenged and being made out to be dishonest during that period of time, uh, sometimes a buffoon. I mean, Kathleen Zellner calls you stupid at various times in her investigation. Um, so I, I always wonder if, if, if your ego sometimes prepares, and, and again, I'm not mad at you for that. Ego is my biggest problem. We all a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We'll have an ego. If your ego sometimes just takes such a battering still that it propels you to to show up and stand up in front of the media and say hey i'm still standing by my investigation yeah the the um i guess the the hidden answer for this is nobody else on our side on the on the state side the investigators or prosecutors nobody else uh, was willing to say anything i had asked the other investigators uh, stand up for yourself. I'd ask the other prosecutors, somebody other than me needs to stand up for this conviction and for this case. And they chose not to. They thought it was all going to go away. And so if I wasn't going to stand up for it, who was? Who is going to push back? Who is going to say what you're watching never happened in real life? Who is going to tell that truth? And so I was the only one left to do it. I knew, Michelle, don't make no mistake about this i knew that when i asked others to do it that all of my uh my sexting issue was going to be uh, a natural lightning rod for for all of these things and i didn't want to do that i didn't want to go there i don't want to be the uh the spokesperson for it but in the same uh, in the in the same vein i'm not going to stand by and allow um, uh, these filmmakers or Ms. Zellner or anybody else to misrepresent uh, what happened. I, you know, I very much um, uh, respect Kathleen Zellner's uh, work uh, in her exonerations, um, but this case just isn't isn't that. You know, she has um, she's named uh, everybody she can as what she calls the real killer, which I believe is incredibly unethical. It isn't something that any lawyer that I know of is willing to do without any evidence. You know, the ex-boyfriend of, of Teresa or the, the cops involved in the case or or any number of people that don't have the name Stephen Avery have been identified by her as having been uh, involved in, in some case. Yet there's no evidence. The evidence that she has presented is a joke. Uh, no legal scholar uh, takes any of that uh, seriously. She didn't even get a hearing uh, based upon uh, what she calls uh, her new evidence. And so uh, until Ms. Zellner presents something that some court accepts, until she stops getting thrown out of court every time she shows up on this case, uh, then perhaps she should uh, not render those opinions about me, who, as you've noted, is the one person out of the case. I haven't been involved in the case since, uh, you know, since uh, 2007 when uh, 
when I prosecuted the case. So, so why Ken Kratz? Why, why, why do I remain all these years later um, uh, the person identified as the reason that uh, these people are uh, are are still in prison? Uh, but we don't uh, get to choose, I guess, what uh, what role we have. We don't get to choose uh, uh, the consequences that uh, uh, that we face, just how we uh, we deal with them and 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 handle them. And until um, until the filmmakers and Ms. Zellner stop misrepresenting this case, um, it's unlikely that I'm going to uh, stop uh, 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 relaying um, the truth to uh, to anybody that will listen. And uh, and if they have a problem with who's presenting this evidence, then then that's fine. But I'd ask at least they please look at what it is I'm saying and not who's saying it. Well, I guess that the, the problem that you have is that, you know, earlier you said that you're so grateful that you never ended up hurting anyone in a profound way. And I guess there are a lot of people in the world who think you have. I think there are at least two people who you've hurt in a profound way. So would you mind if, if I put to you some questions that our listeners um, are asking you? And we'll be back with those. And some of the hundred questions in Kathleen Zellner's famous Stephen Avery Proof of Guilt Challenge after the break. Coming up on the Nitty Gritty Committee, Ken has an extraordinary question for Laura Ricardo, one of the makers of Making a Murderer. But first, I have some questions for him from Australian True Crime listeners. The first one I have to ask you is, is Brendan Dassey. I mean, don't you think, do you, I mean, I really think that confession was coerced. Don't you find, the longer we go on, I find it harder and harder to think that boy, that boy's confession wasn't coerced out of him by the police. Do you ever, as time goes by, change your position on Brendan Dassey? Well, Brendan Dassey, I have a lot of sympathy uh, for. I had offered, uh, through his lawyer, um, a, uh, a, a much reduced sentence. I had offered that he spend as little as 15 years in prison. If he would have accepted that, he would. Just, I just, I really found his, his lawyer, Laura Nairada's, um evidence compelling, sort of about the um, evidence about children um, so much more likely to confess to things that they haven't done. And, and I find, you know, they're really finding some interesting psychological um, information about mm-hmm. people in Brendan's position. Do you find any of that stuff compelling? Sure. I, in fact, I, I've, uh, I've said it a number of times, Lauren Nyrider did a, 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 a remarkable job. Here's the problem, though. This wasn't the case to try to uh, to try to get these juvenile justice reforms on, because the officers never did um, uh, coerce him. You know, people have seen, as I mentioned, exactly what they wanted you to see: little, tiny, little snippets of a four-hour confession. You don't get to see when Brendan gives uh, really troubling details about how he and uh, Uncle Stephen raped and, and killed and, and disposed of this young young woman. You know, if if you uh, and by you I mean everybody, if they would look at the entire uh, confession, I think they would have a much better understanding of it. Now, the federal the Court of Appeals did 
see the entire statement. And uh, to suggest that, well, it's obviously a confession, you know, when the Federal Court of Appeals says, but it's not, it's not coerced, it is not involuntary. Um, at some point, you've got to trust that. At some point, uh, those that aren't involved with it have to have to trust that you're not being shown everything. You're not being told everything that, that, uh, that happened in this case. However, Brendan Dassey is a, um, uh, a, a sad kid. He never would have engaged in rape or murder, any of these things without his uncle Stephen cajoling him and, and, uh, and inviting him to, uh, to, put, to participate in this. But Brendan Dassey was there. Brendan Dassey helped. Brendan Dassey could have saved Teresa Hallock. He chose not to. Brendan Dassey, when asked why was it that you raped her, he said, I wanted to know what it felt like. I wanted to know what sex felt like. And so, so Brendan um, made some terrible uh, decisions that he has, uh, has had to pay for. I never thought he should have gotten life imprisonment. Um, we offered, as I mentioned, that uh, uh, that plea agreement where he'd spend as little as 15 years. It wasn't even uh, his lawyer that turned it down. It wasn't Brendan, really, that turned it down. It was his own family. His family, his grandfather specifically called him and said, don't take the plea bargain. It's not going to help both of you. In other words, it's not going to help Stephen Avery to to have this kid who was looking at that time for somebody on his side, somebody who is going to help him through these really difficult choices. But rather than that, um, he was very much, I think, uh, sacrificed by the family for Stephen's case to make Stephen's chances of acquittal better. You can't take a plea bargain because it's going to help. Um, it's not going to help Stephen's case. That's what he was told, and so he went along with all that. And and sadly, um, what happened to him was very predictable. It was a confession, murder, trial that he was going to be found guilty, and the only sentence that he can get for first degree homicide is life imprisonment. I'm not sure what it was that people wanted us to do other than uh, uh, many times offer him a reduced uh, chance out of this to reflect his uh, his um, reduced role in this, at least compared to uh, his uncle Stephen. Um, but uh, he, his family and and uh, and those that uh, that surrounded him kept telling him, don't take the plea bargain. And so I'm. Uh, I'm 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 uh, very sympathetic about uh, about what had happened um, to uh, to Brendan, um, but I'm afraid those decisions uh, weren't uh, weren't the state's doing. Those were things that um, that uh, that Brendan and his uh, um, his representatives uh, were able to um, to rectify, and they chose not to. Yeah. Um, Siobhan, a listener of ours, would like to know, did you, and I think we all know what you're going to answer to this, but we'll ask anyway, did you intentionally mislabel uh, Bobby Dassey's computer or the CDs as Brendan's? Of course not. No, it was, um, <laughs> first of all, it was, uh, it was filed in the Brendan Dassey case. You know, there's a there's an Avery case and there's a Dassey case, and it was part of the evidence in the Dassey case. Having said that, um, 
Avery's own lawyers, Mr. Buting and Mr. Strang, admitted that they had all of that data since December of 2006. The fact that uh, Kathleen Zellner continues continues to say that um, that was uh, withheld or was a Brady violation or, or was misconduct on our part uh, ignores the fact that uh, the attorneys said all along, we had all of this information. It was given to us. Uh, and and so um, I can't answer why she keeps saying, uh, you know, it's the, the worst Brady violation that uh, that she's ever seen when Avery's own lawyer said, we had this stuff since uh, December of 06. A lot of people are expressing surprise that Bobby Dassey was never uh, prosecuted for the kind of material that was on those discs, that there was child pornography on there. Do you know any, can you explain that? I cannot. That, uh, um, let's, uh, let's understand how I got involved in this case. The Avery and Brendan Dassey cases were assigned to me as a special prosecutor, all right? So I am the, uh, um, uh, from, I'm performing these prosecutions uh, as a favor, really, to Manitowoc County because they had uh, a conflict uh, of interest. And so any um, future prosecutions for any other crimes would be a decision for the Manitowoc uh, County District Attorney's Office or maybe the state of Wisconsin not Ken Kratz. And so uh, those were never uh, presented to me, asking me whether or not uh, some charges in some other county um, might be uh, might be appropriate. If there was child pornography uh, on the computer, uh, very much he should have, uh, he should have been held accountable um, for that. Here's the other thing though, Michelle, um, Please don't buy into Ms. Zellner's claim that it must have been Bobby Dassey who was viewing these things. This is a shared computer with uh, maybe five or six people living in the home that have access to it. Stephen Avery, we know, has access to that, uh, to that same computer. Uh, and so when uh, Stephen Avery um, later tells people about the pornography that's on the computer. How do you know that, Stephen? How, how do you know that 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 computer has has these kinds of porn images on it if you weren't yourself actively involved in uh, in in using that that computer? So these are questions that should be uh, asked. These are conclusions by Miss Zellner that obviously it was Bobby Dassey that have not been accepted by the state or by um, the judge that uh, that she uh, submitted it to. It was uh, such a weak connection, uh, as I mentioned about some of her other evidence, that she wasn't even given a hearing for it. So um, don't, don't take these things at face value. We know that Ms. Zellner has misrepresented many, many things in this case. Uh, so why would she be believed in, um, in the Bobby Dassey search the computer conclusion? Annalee asks a, an interesting question. Would you ever consider taking a polygraph test or one of those brain fingerprinting tests that they uh, asked Stephen Avery to take in this series? Well, brain fingerprinting is not admissible, never has been. No no court in the country has it been allowed. Kathleen Zellner knows this. She knows it's inadmissible kinds of evidence, yet she trumpets it as, as being uh, something that is, um, um, you know, 
the best thing since uh, since sliced bread. I guess one of the questions I'd have to ask is why? Why would a prosecutor from 12 years ago um, uh, take a, uh, a polygraph and what questions would I be asked? Because if people want to ask me uh, the questions that perhaps a polygraph would do, I'm happy to answer those plus provide um, um, written or physical evidence that uh, that backs those things up. Nothing that I did in this case, and again, it's been it's been scrutinized for 12 years now. Nothing that I have have done uh, has been uh, characterized by any uh, legal scholar or by any court. Uh, as being improper. And so the suggestion that I should take a polygraph or that um, this uh, this brain mapping or something uh, I should engage in, um, I think is absurd. Uh, also, this is a good question that I was thinking, uh, wondering, I'm sure we all are, uh, Niz or Nyes asks, in the, in the documentary series, you, you said at one point that Ms. Zellner had uncovered evidence that was actually not positive for Stephen Avery, but you didn't go on to say what that was. Are you prepared to say now what, what it was? Well, some of it I don't know because because what the test results were that she didn't share with the state of Wisconsin or that she didn't share uh, with the public uh, is only something that uh, that she knows. Let me let me put it this way. The the most contentious piece of evidence from the trial was the blood inside the RAV4 and whether or not it contained this preservative, which is called EDTA, all right? So the the complaints from the defense attorneys were that the, the test that was used to find whether or not this EDTA uh, was present, in other words, whether it came from the vial of blood uh, that uh, was in the clerk of court's office or not, uh, that this test was faulty or that it had um, you know, limits that uh, that weren't uh, well established or things like that. The defense attorneys, Strang and Buting, plus every lawyer that's had the case since, Zellner included, have chosen, as I understand, not to retest that blood. Why not? Why not? Why is the most complained about evidence never even retested? by the defense. The answer to me is obvious that they know what the results are going to be. The blood in that car, in that SUV, was from Stephen Avery's finger. It was from active bleeding. There's six different spots of blood. It is deposited in four different ways. One from gravity, the, the droplets uh, uh, from active bleeding. Uh, one from a, a swiping motion, one from projectile or what's called cast off, and uh, and one from a contact uh, transfer. Well, if you're going to plant blood, why would you do it in four different ways? You know, if somebody's sophisticated enough to to harvest this blood some from somewhere, not sure where they would have gotten his blood, but if they were able to harvest it from somewhere, why would they plant it in in four different ways? And who? Who would plant uh, that evidence? And so the suggestion that it might have come from his sink or some nonsense uh, that, you know, that uh, Ryan Hilgis or somebody would would sneak into his uh, his trailer undetected with a with a pipette and, and harvest this and then and then go plant it is is crazy. There are things that she doesn't tell you, like the the um, 
the blood itself, as I understand, was not coagulated. It was not. It didn't show it to be um, to be coagulated, which I think happens in about twenty minutes, from when um, from when blood is is first leaves the uh, the human body. And so, are you telling me that somebody snuck into his trailer, harvested it, planted all of it within twenty minutes? When uh, when that blood wouldn't uh, wouldn't be coagulated, there's lots and lots and lots of reasons that all of that uh, evidence or all of that suggestion by the defense is nonsense. The jury got to hear that, by the way. Mr. Buting suggested that the blood may have come from Stephen Avery's sink. I was able to argue why that was um, uh, just crazy. What, what a what a what a crazy idea. That was considering all of the evidence that we had presented, and nothing has been presented to any court since then to disprove that. Well, the answer is because it's not believable. It's 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 fiction to think that 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 blood could be harvested from the sink and redeposited uh, in the car wherever the car was hidden uh, within uh, within 20 minutes of. of of receiving it so the blood is a contentious issue for many many reasons and it's the first question of which i'm sure you've heard of the hundred questions that uh kathleen zellner has issued this is her stephen avery proof of guilt challenge i'm not going to ask you the hundred obviously but the first question is if mr avery was actively bleeding as you say from his finger then why are there only six spots of blood in the rav4 well uh, first of all, equating the absence of evidence with the presence of evidence is a classic uh, thing that defense attorneys do. They're saying, well, the fact that it wasn't on the steering wheel is just as powerful as uh, it was on the dashboard. That's, that's nonsense. There's lots of reasons that it's not. You know, the, the, I can't think of any reason why it wouldn't be on the steering wheel. Well, he wiped off the steering wheel. How's that for one explanation? You know, he wiped off the steering wheel, but he didn't wipe off the the dashboard because it was dark out. He didn't he didn't see it. That seems plausible anyway. And there's lots of plausible reasons why uh, why it wouldn't be you know everywhere in um, in 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 the SUV. I told the jury that uh, some questions they weren't going to be able to answer because uh, because uh, much of this was was called circumstantial evidence. You find the evidence and then you build a theory um, uh, around how it was likely deposited. Nobody now, nobody disagrees that that was Stephen Avery's blood uh, in the uh, in the SUV. It's his. It's his blood. Even Zellner says it's his. It's Stephen Avery's blood. And so you've got to come up with a plausible way that it gets there in six different places if you're expecting anybody to uh, accept your planting theory. Question 11 is an interesting one that's always bothered me. Why is there no forensic evidence related to Teresa Holbach in Stephen Avery's trailer? No blood, hair, skin cells, fingerprints. That is troubling. Yeah, well, Stephen Avery cleaned the uh, the uh, the trailer um, for uh, about five days before he had got there. When officers, both on Thursday and Friday, had entered Stephen Avery's trailer, each of them mentioned that it smelled uh, of 
being freshly cleaned, that there were cleaning agents and, and uh, a rug shampooer, uh, and, uh, and a lot of effort was taken uh, uh, to clean that. A lot of effort was taken to clean the garage floor with bleach and with uh, paint thinner and other cleaning agents there. Uh, I suspect he didn't clean the inside of the SUV because he was going to crush the car. That car would have been crushed on the afternoon of Saturday, November 5th, when Stephen Avery was coming back home. He had told his girlfriend that he was coming back that afternoon, and he intended to, uh, he didn't tell her that he intended to crush the car, uh, but that's when was the first time when he could get back onto the salvage area without any witnesses, without the public being there. Remember, this was an open, active um, salvage yard, and they had customers every day uh, until that Saturday afternoon, which would have been his first opportunity to crush the car. So if that car would have been crushed, if that car would have been uh, placed with all the other crushed cars, uh, we likely wouldn't have found this. And I'm going to uh, say words that I cringe saying, if he would have crushed the car, he likely would have gotten away with murder. We never would have found her bones. We never would have gotten onto uh, his uh, uh, property in order to do the uh, the searches. Uh, and it was uh, fortuitous that the vehicle was found the morning of November 5th rather than sometime later that afternoon. Wow. I mean, I suppose my, my only other question is, do you ever tire of having people like me come at you with legal questions this documentary like nothing else i've ever known gives people like me this confidence suddenly we're coming out you talking about brady violations and uh you know sure. it, it just it gives us this language and this confidence we all think we're lawyers i went and found out about dna uh in sweat yesterday i went and contacted uh, a dna expert to find out if if sweat could be you know if dna could be taken from sweat it can by the way uh you know suddenly well let me let me stop you there you know when you look at the transcripts when you look at what i actually said they mischaracterized me saying sweat dna I said skin cells. I said they were skin cells sloughed from Stephen Avery's hands. Uh, uh, you know, the the uh, the general public can't wait to attribute the term sweat DNA uh, uh, to me. I can remember the first uh, the first time I heard that was uh, uh, was in the interview that uh, that I had done. It was a a shorthand way for prosecutors uh, to talk about um, shedding of skin cells from the hand. They they would, uh, in a shorthand way, uh, call it sweat DNA, which is a which is a, a, a misnomer for sure. And I never uh, suggested that. I had always suggested it was uh, skin cells uh, which were being shed from uh, from his hands. And so, can you imagine the comments we're going to get after this? Imagine the comments we're going to get after this podcast from everyone, sort of challenging you and I, but I mean, they can challenge me. I'm not a lawyer, but challenging you on everything you say, because this documentary gives everybody's so much confidence that they know about the legal process and sure. about forensics and sure. well here's the here's here's what i will i will caution once again and 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 i don't say this uh, to be uh, unnecessarily critical but you were shown what they wanted you to see this the the filmmakers don't provide both sides they don't even try to provide both sides if if there is some evidence that doesn't 
fit their narrative that Stephen was uh, was set up, uh, they ignore it. Uh, a great example still, Michelle, uh, is uh, Teresa Hawthorn and her uh, PDA and her camera being burned in Stephen Avery's personal burn barrel, just a couple of feet from his front door. You don't even hear about it in number one. You don't hear about it in number two. How else with, with these electronics that would take several hours to burn, where two witnesses, two of them, witnessed Stephen Avery burning in that burn barrel the afternoon, the very afternoon that Teresa's uh, gone missing, the 31st of October, witnessed Stephen burning in that burn barrel, and, and it ends up that her camera and her phone are in that burn barrel uh, burned. But they don't mention it. The reason they don't mention it is, is should be obvious. They don't have an explanation for it. There's no answer for it if you're trying to say he was set up. Even now, when Attorney Zellner suggests Ryan Hilgis or, or a combination of the cops or other family members, they still never mention these electronics. Why? And why does nobody ask her? Why does nobody ask Kathleen Zellner, hey, what about this? What about this other evidence that you, you have no uh, explanation for, where it points directly to your client as having committed the murder? Um, nobody will ask you those tough questions. Speaking of tough questions, can you what can you tell me about the deal between the filmmakers and the lifetime rights between uh, Brendan Dassey and um, Stephen Avery? Well, I saw a letter that was written by the Department of Justice. Department of Justice had uh, written to Ms. Riccardi uh, and had uh, told her to rectify this compensation um, uh, deal that she had made with Brendan Dassey. Brendan Dassey was uh, provided, um, at least according to um, these reports, $5,000 from Laura Riccardi uh, for what's called his life rights. Now, I've never uh, you know, been a filmmaker. I don't know what it is to negotiate for somebody's life rights, but I'm guessing with the millions and millions of dollars that they made, that $5,000 for Brendan's life rights is 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 somewhat understated it's it's less probably than brendan probably deserved the other the other um really troubling part of this is brendan uh, clearly was not represented by a lawyer during these negotiations i asked steve Driesen specifically i i met with him face to face who is he now he's uh laura riccardi's uh partner He's the uh, uh, he's the uh, Brendan Dassey's appellate lawyer, and so I asked Steve uh, whether he represented uh, Brendan in those negotiations. He said he did not. He didn't even know about um, what was going on. And so, who was the lawyer? Was Brendan even given a lawyer by uh, by Ms. Riccardi, who is a lawyer herself? Was uh, was he provided with a lawyer for these uh, really complex uh, what it would be uh, negotiations? You know, Brendan's uh, lead appellate attorney uh, after uh, the case. You've seen him in Making Murderer One and very very a small amount in Number Two. His name is Robert Dvorak. Mr. Dvorak, um, uh, I, I guess uh, I guess I'll say interestingly. Um, Back during 2006, 
when the case was uh, was going forward and and uh, we had asked uh, to see Ms. Ricardi's uh, footage that she had up up till uh, that point. Well, Bob Dvorak, who's now Brendan's lead lawyer, is Laura Ricardi's lawyer. Synthesis Films, who is uh, Laura Ricardi's uh, production company, her lawyer who represented her uh, complaining about giving up uh, her footage was none other than Bob Dvorak. Well, if Bob Dvorak is Ms. Ricardi's lawyer, and Bob Dvorak is also Brendan's lead counsel. He can't represent both of them in in the negotiations. And so, who represented Brendan? Who was helping Brendan out with with these things? It's a I don't have the answer. It's a question that I hope that uh, Ms. Riccardi will be asked someday if you believe that he was uh, so intellectually or or. Um, uh, emotionally or lack of sophistication or any other reason that he needed a, a lawyer uh, present during all of the interviews with him, did you not feel the same way when financially you were negotiating with him for his life rights? The answer should be, of course, he needed a lawyer, and so why wasn't he presented one? Maybe he was, Michelle. I'm making no no such um, claims that uh, that he wasn't. I know the lawyers that did represent him at the time, they all didn't represent him in this negotiation. And so it's a question, um, as I mentioned, uh, that I hope somebody, some media person will someday ask the filmmakers. Thank you for downloading this episode of the Nitty Gritty Committee. I'll be back with another story about the guts and the glory of life next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 